What if your faith could become more than just a story? What if your faith could be as gentle as a dove and as wise as a serpent? What if your faith could become as bold as a lion? What if your faith could become lethal? My name is Blake Harris, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Michael Knight. And here on the Lethal Faith Podcast, we're here to give your faith some lethality. All right, guys, we're going to pick up with some individual personalities this week, uh, some personalities who were quite large in the New Testament. Uh, we are, whenever we begin to say some of these names, these names are going to pop out very vividly to some of us. Um, uh, one of the things uh, in Dr. Michael Knight's uh, new book that he talks about uh, is in Lethal Faith, Volume 1, the Old Testament, we saw the the work of uh, Dr. Uh, Lawrence Mykaitwick, I believe, uh, who definitely proved the existence of 53 people in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, several more have been added to the original list. Um, but what about the New Testament? Uh, is there possible uh, to prove the existence of or, or truth behind the stories of individuals mentioned in the New Testament? Uh, Dr. Lawrence uh, says we can definitely identify at least 23 people and many more can be used to prove the historical truths uh, their characters uh, represent. Yeah, and let's start with Caiaphas, the high priest that uh, was in charge of a, a mock trial with Jesus. Matthew 26 and 4, 57 and 64, Mark 14, 53, Luke 22, 54, John 11, 49, 18 and 19, and then Acts 4 and 6 all talk about Caiaphas. Well, we know, well, this is interesting because we thought we had found the house of Caiaphas. Yes, I remember this. But now it appears that we found the real house. Now, he may have had two because he was super wealthy, but we have found a very wealthy home connected to the Temple Mount. Um, we know that he lived during the time of uh, Herod Agrippa. We found um, coins uh, at the ossuary of Caiaphas. So we have found his, his, uh, 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 his ossuary, his bone box, and we found coins uh, during the period of Herod Agrippa that connects us to him. Now, uh, we also have even found his granddaughter's bones. So we not only have found, or his ossuary of his granddaughter, I should say. Um, there's a lot of evidence about Caiaphas. The home of Caiaphas served, you know, who served as a great high priest between A.D. 18 and, and 36, was the son-in-law of Annas, the member of the tribe of Levi, and a devout Sadducee. And he's mentioned directly by Josephus as Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. His home is mentioned in multiple secondary sources, 333 A.D., where the house of Caiaphas the priest was, Surreal in A.D. 340, Theodosius in A.D. 530, the monk Epiphanius in A.D. 780, all point to the house of Caiaphas. So his house, within the first six, seven hundred years of Christianity, was a well-known place. And historically, 
archaeology attests to the reality of a man named Caiaphas, who was the great high priest during the time of Jesus. So we have his ossuary. In 1990, while construction workers were working on the development of a new water theme park, which, Blake, as hot as it is in Kentucky this week, we need to go to a water park after this, all right? <laughs> or back to my swimming pool at our house, because it's 100 degrees in Kentucky this week. That's the temperature. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, so uh, this guy started, um, that was referred to by Matthew, Luke, and John, was buried in an ossuary along with his family. And archaeologists have even found the ossuary, Miriam, his granddaughter, along with two infant, two teenage boys, a woman and a man in their 60s. The man in his 60s is thought to be the very bones of Caiaphas. So we can't find the bones of Jesus, but we can find the bones of the one that crucified him. Well, can I preach real fast? Yeah, that's right. Every head bow, every head closed. No one looking around. <clears throat> Written on the ossuary were the words, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. So it's a fascinating to think that we probably have the very bones and the grave of the one who put the death, the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave. And so the ossuary is actually dated to the first century. Um, it's amazing. Then we got Lydia. Tell us about Lydia. Uh, Lydia was the woman in the Bible who traded in purple. Uh, Pliny, the younger, the Roman governor of Bithynia, uh, late in the first century wrote the frantic passion for purple. She was a seller of purple, which sold mainly in the international market. She is described as a dealer, which designates someone who bought and sold goods. Acts 16 and 14 reveals that Lydia was from um, Tyrethia, the city which had trade guilds including wool, linen, baking, slaves, leather, bronze, pottery, and dyes. Uh, purple was made from the, the matter root, uh, which was less expensive and extremely profitable. That's well, a, She was filthy rich. If you dealt in purple... Like, she sold purple in Ephesus. Yeah. She's from Theratyra, which is the guild for dye making. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and oftentimes, a purple blade came from a mollusk or some kind of sea creature that released this dye. But it would take an enormous amount of muscles to get the kind of dye you needed. And so they put Jesus in a purple robe. Purple was reserved for royalty and very, very wealthy people. One of the things I'm learning, I didn't know this, Blake, but when uh, a Persian, a Persian was usually dressed in a, um, a skirt, both men and women, men and women, and you could tell their wealth by the fringes. Wow. And so that seems to be true, too, during the first century with, with a lot of other cultures. The more elaborate the garment, the more elaborate the fringes, the, mm -hmm. especially with the color, the more uh, wealthy you would have uh, been. So she was very wealthy. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I wouldn't have thought the fringes would have been that that big of an ordeal. It was in Persia or in Babylon? Yep. Wow. Uh, which leads us to uh, I'm going to butcher this guy's Gamalia. name. Gamalia. Gamalia the Elder. Uh, so what about Gamalia the Elder? Do do we have? What do we know about him? Well, Acts five thirty four through thirty nine and Acts twenty two and three mentions him by name. Gamaliel's grandfather was famous and revered by the Jewish people. Gamaliel the Elder was the tutor to the Apostle Paul. It's like saying I was trained at Harvard today. I mean, yeah. Gamaliel the Elder was a very famous academic Jewish um, elder, for lack of a better word. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 71 people who tried Jesus. 
So the word Sanhedrin actually means sitting together. And he stood up and attested that they should not worry about Jesus. He said, if he's not God, then don't worry about him. But we've actually found um, several things proving Gamaliel the elder. Um, then we have John the Baptist. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 and 1 through 15. This is my favorite character in all the Bible. Is it there, really? Yes. There's literally a scripture. and It's just real short. And it says, and he was a man. You know, yeah. I always find it fascinating. They made it very clear that he was a man, right? And of course, you know, we all the story goes on and it says, you know, he he ate locusts and honey and he dressed in animal skins and all this. I mean, that's a real man. I'm not living out in the wilderness dressing in animal skin and eating locusts and honey. Of all the things, Blake, in writing and researching for Lethal Faith too, that I came across that kind of shocked me the most, and that and it was this. The archaeological evidence for John the Baptist. Now, he's mentioned, uh, of course, in Matthew, Mark, and in John, but he's also mentioned in secondary sources, such as um, by name by Flavius Josephus. Uh, he's mentioned in the Jewish mission of Babylonian Talmud. Uh, he, he's mentioned in the writings of Gamaliel the Elder, and whom trained the Apostle Paul. Um, it's amazing. So when you look at John the Baptist, okay, number one, John was beheaded, uh, the Macurus Palace of King Herod. We have literally just found recently the very dense floor that John the Baptist's head was asked for when King Herod's daughter or stepdaughter wanted his head on a silver platter. We have found the dance floor where Salome danced in front of King Herod, and this palace was the palace of Herod of Antipas, which he inhabited with his stepdaughter, Salome, and she danced before him in Mark 6, 21, asked for the head of John the Baptist. So we know John the Baptist was said to have been beheaded by Herod of Antipas uh, on the dance floor at his palace, and we have found the palace, we found the throne where the king sat, and we found the dance floor. That's uh that's that's pretty sufficient there, you know. The dance floor is the one that gets me. Like I understand, okay, them wanting to preserve the the, the throne of King Herod and things like that. But the dance floor, I find that very fascinating that that was preserved throughout all, all of history. And you know, a lot of people don't realize that Herod uh, convinced Herodias to leave her husband. Um, it was a union that John the Baptist publicly denounced. And this greatly angered Herod of Antipas and his new wife. And this is why his stepdaughter asked him for the head of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14, verse 7, and Mark 6, 23. It's one of the few archaeological sites that have been reassembled using the original uh, architectural elements. It was discovered actually in 1980 under six feet of debris. Um, it was a 7,000-square-foot mansion uh, that the Herod Herodian dynasties used. Um, the archaeological evidence of Herod Antipas, his wife, his stepdaughter, and John the Baptist are confirmed in the Bible. My multiple stories about these four people. They're not moral lessons. They're actual people. And so one of the places that, that I found fascinating is there's a place called the Suba Cave, and it's a site where John the Baptist may have spent his final years. When you go into this cave, there are pictures that pilgrims drew graffiti where John the Baptist was long believed to have stayed. 
He's possibly dressed in a uh, animal skin. Uh, there's an entrance to the cave. Uh, there's a foot washing stone there. There is a mikvah, a place for baptisms for Jewish people for ritual cleansing. Um, there's a place where John the Baptist is being beheaded on the caves. This Suba cave was first constructed between 500 and 700 B.C. and was located near the birthplace, Blake, of John the Baptist, which is in walking distance. So the cave contained a pool that flowed to the outside with large 18 steps going down into the cave. So it was obviously not an irrigation system like 2 Kings 3.16 talks about. However, it held a very elaborate water system. And at the site, they found pottery dating to the first century. Inside the cave, they found an interesting foot washing stone. This stone was used to anoint the right foot, probably before baptism in water. And we know the cave was not used for any kind of domestic or agricultural activity. It seems the cave was used for performing religious rituals. So the archaeological evidence supports the idea of immersion rituals that took place during the time of John the Baptist in the Roman period like Mark 1, 9, and 11 talks about. So this cave is dedicated by the presence of ancient plaster. And this is true in the house of St. Peter, I believe, in, um, um, oh, uh, I just forgot where Peter was uh, uh lived anyway where peter's house is at when you see ancient plaster in an old artifice uh, artifice like that that means somebody with some money and resources is really trying to dress it up because it is now something extremely special going on here uh, or as a matter of fact i think it was the home of jesus the, the birthplace of jesus we'll talk about later so by 1999 the suba cave was discovered uh, by an archaeologist, and he found several pieces of graffiti dating back to the Byzantine area, which is 330 A.D. And uh, he found a man drawing, a drawing of a man that looked like a shepherd-like character with his arms upraised with a crooked staff, wearing a hairy garment that represented the fur of animals. Next to it was a tripod that had what looked like a vessel or a lamb upon it. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. On the opposite wall is a drawing of a head which symbolizes John decapitation uh, at uh, Herod's um, one of his vacation homes. And there is another drawing that is T-shaped with streamers on its side representing a Greek-style cross and three individual crosses. So the evidence of the Suba cave is circumstantial, but it does represent a set of coherent features seemingly directing people of faith in Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. And it's possible that the graffiti served as a visual aid for early Christian monks who taught and baptized at this site. So the site... Uh, in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, is actually an archaeological park, um, and it is actually listed on the Madaba map. If you don't know what a Madaba map is, you got to learn. It was a map that the early church left us of where these sites that are mentioned in the Bible were located. So it's really fascinating to see um, where Jesus had been baptized. And they actually built a Byzantine church of John the Baptist there. And there's a mosaic in the ancient church of John the Baptist. This original site where Jesus was baptized by John, John 1.26, has been immensely interested uh, to people for hundreds of years. But what's so fascinating is that when you go to the Jordan River, you will go and be baptized in the Jordan River. Thousands yeah. of people, tens of thousands of people do oh, that. Yeah. However, 
that's not the actual location. We know that the location is down the river somewhat, um, and the Madaba Max actually tells us where it's at. Talk to us about the bones of John the Baptist, Blake. Uh, yeah, so the bones of John the Baptist uh, were in 2010. Casimir, good I, luck. I have no idea. D-O-P-K-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-O-V. Good luck to anybody listening, too. That's right. Uh, discovered what he believes to be the bones of John the Baptist. He was interested in the DNA analysis, uh, could tell us about these bones and even the DNA of Jesus Christ, uh, since he and John were cousins. The archaeologist said to, started to excavate a 6th century church on the island of Sivit, Ivan, or John the Baptist. The church had been built upon top of a preceding church. Big and, deal. Yep, big deal, uh, in the same spot. As Casimir uh, scraped through the mud where the ancient altar would have been, he stumbled upon a stone slab. Underneath the stone slab was a marble box. When a church was built uh, during this period, it was built in a special place for a special reason. It had to be connected to a relic in a special place for a special reason, um, and it had to be a leader of an early church. A, a meter away, he found a smaller box with the inscription that said, May God save you, Servant Thomas, to St. John. Inside the box, he found five bone fragments. Archaeologists believe they, they use the smaller box to carry the relics when they traveled. This is why the archaeologists believe that these were the bones of John the Baptist. Don't they think they found the bones of John <clears throat> the Baptist? I don't know whether they will... God would never let them find the DNA of Jesus, but it's interesting. That is interesting. I I never I I guess I never would have would have thought about that connecting John and Jesus because they were cousin and trying to discover their DNA. But but Jesus was a hundred percent human too. That's right. Um, even the University of Oxford, Blake, uh, have studied these bones and found them to be from the same person. And it's very highly likely that their origins are from the Near East. And uh, so they may have found the bones of John the Baptist, but you'll never hear that on the evening news. Um, that's definitely true. Yeah. Well, they have James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, who I'm enamored with right now. Our new Bible study at 530 in August at Covenant Community Church, our Bible college class is going to be studying the book of James. And James has always been one of my favorite people because James was so revered as the half-brother of Jesus for his prayer life that they yeah. actually called him Camel Knees. Camel Knees, that's right. I can't imagine how calloused his knees must have been for him to have been called that. You know, and that's true. I can't imagine how, if somebody came to me and said, okay, Mark Knight is the son of God, I would really struggle. <laughs> that's my brother that i love but i would struggle greatly okay i don't know about this one all right yeah you had me at hello but this one's a little stretch that's true like like sometimes we try to brush over people in the bible and we think ah, uh, you know they humanize they, that's right but this these, is a sucker they hit me in the head with a rock when i was 12 yeah, yeah he's but, not god <laughs> that's right but can you imagine growing up to be the half brother of jesus and you're like so you're the son of God, huh? Right. And what's so f amazing about that, Blake, is like when you take Jude, half-brother Jesus, or James, the half, uh, the just, the half-brother Jesus, um, you, you, they never use that in the writings of the Scripture. They call them servants of Jesus Christ. Yeah. They never bring up the fact that that's my homie. 
Yeah, that's right. They don't I mean, even brag about it. That's right. You know, I mean, I mean, these guys were were. I'm assuming he was probably around what? When was James born? Uh, Do we know? I don't know. Secondary sources that were found at the Dead Sea Scrolls and Papias Fragment X. Uh, were written about 110 to 180, along with Clement of Alexandria. They all mentioned James the Just. Well, I'm just uh, thinking, you know, James or Jude was probably around when Jesus stayed back at the temple, you know, at like 12 years old. You know, and they were probably like, oh, we got to go find Jesus. He's off teaching yeah. the people again. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I find that fascinating. Well, he calls one of the biggest purported scandals in Christianity, because they found the ossuary of James, the just. And on the box, it says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, had it just said James, no big deal. Had it just said Joseph, no big deal. Had it just said Jesus, Yahshua, it would have been no big deal. Lots of people were named James, Joseph, or Jesus. However, for a bone box, an ossuary, to say James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, was what one scholar said, the find of the millennial, if it's true. And so they spent millions of dollars fighting this in court. That's right. And I mean, we actually did a whole podcast over this alone because it was such a huge controversy. I mean, years they tied it up in court, years and years. And I, I couldn't believe, like, how long they actually fought this in court, trying to say that it was a scam. You know, it was incredible. Well, one of the reasons they fought it was James was certainly a leader, leading figure in the early church. And the name James, too, was a very popular name, as was Joseph and Jesus. But Joseph appeared, the word Joseph appears in, in 14%, Jesus appears in 9%, and James uh, or Jacob per, appears in 2% of the cases that a um, scientist cataloged of ancient ossuaries. So Jesus is actually, or excuse me, Joseph is in 14% of those ossuaries. Jesus is in 9%, and Jacob is in 2%. Now, considering that there was an estimated 40,000 males in a city of nearly 800,000 people, it is one thing to have each name in Jerusalem mentioned during the first century within 40,000 males, but few would have had a father named Joseph and a brother named Jesus, which absolutely rocked the archaeological world. Absolutely. You know, this this trial um, was like a, a five-year war kind of broke out in the court systems. The news media spread facts of the trial throughout the world. Uh, the Department of Antiquities Authority sued uh, a man uh, for forgery uh, of an ancient document. Mm -hmm. uh, Blake, there were hundreds of hearings, 12,000 pages of transcripts, 138 witnesses, 400 exhibits presented to the court, and a ruling came down that was written in 474 pages. You want to talk about some scrutiny? This thing has been scrutinized like no other archaeological document I can remember recently. Yeah, you're right. <clears throat> the two uh, world-renowned uh, script experts or paleographers Paleographies, <laughs> Paleographers uh, took a scientific look at the original inscription. Uh, Andrew Lamar uh, of uh, Hebrew University. Yep. So uh, he says uh, not a single paleographer or of repute 
have challenged their analysis. So in other words, no one's going to come against these guys and say, yo, this is wrong. And And that's an important point, Blake, you've just made. It appears that the accusation of forgery were motivated by little facts. Yeah. And in Lethal Faith 2, that's out now, of Rediscovering Jesus, we actually have a list of the of the evidence for these things. Yeah, it's uh, substantial, uh, I would definitely say. So really, what, what's all the fuss about then, Michael? What, what is, why, why do we fight this so hard, you know? And... Uh, well, it now appears that the accusations of forgery were motivated by little facts. The entire trial was based on the eyewitness testimony of Joe Zias, an unemployed anthropologist, former employee of the Israeli Antiquities Authority, who claimed to see the box years early without the inscription of Brother of Jesus. He admitted that he saw the inscription only a few seconds. He does not hold any credentials to prove the box a forgery. So what do those who are experts say about the box, Blake? One excellent article called The James Ossoware, the early, Earliest Witnesses to Jesus and His Family. They've done an excellent job. You need to read their articles. Uh, they wrote a chart that I was just talking about. Uh, matter of fact, Calvary Chapel and Joseph Holden, who owns a Ph.D., actually shows these facts. The box has even been determined to be authentic because of the fungus found on the box. So the fungus on the box points it to the first century. So why all the fuss? Because the bo- if this box is authentic, it would be the first and only artifact from the time of Jesus to mention his name as a human being and history outside of the Bible and writings about him. When these events began, the church was elated. After Word of the lawsuit began. The church backed off from its authenticity. And although I can name one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, eight, over eighteen scholars that are experts in academia in their field that talks about these things. And Blake. Everyone that goes to a Lethal Faith Conference, sometimes I show this video, sometimes I don't. But if you need to check out the CBS 60-minute video featuring uh, the ossuary of James the Just. It's a great video to watch. But that video was made while the scandal was going on. What's happened is they've come back and said, this artifact cannot be proven to be a fraud. Yeah. That is a huge, huge, huge win uh, for us in Christianity, you know. And so you definitely need to check that out. Check out our uh, earlier podcast where we dive deeper into this. And we really dive deep into this and, and like, all the evidence they have for it. So so check that out. Uh, Like I said, it's in our earlier podcast. And so, which leads us to uh, Ananias, uh, the high priest, uh, which is mentioned in uh, Luke 3, 2, John 18, uh, 13 and 19, 24, Acts 4 and 6. <clears throat> this man served as high priest uh, in Jerusalem uh, from 6 to, to 15 AD. He was removed from his post by the governor of Syria, Quirinius, uh, I think Christmas, right? His daughter married Caiaphas, a future high priest, Easter, of course, and Joseph Josephus mentions him in his own writings uh, in the Antiquities of the Jews. <clears throat> the 
We have the possible mansion of a high priest, uh, Ennis. Uh, archaeologist Lean Lean Rittmeyer believes that he may have found the, the palace of an... Uh, I am mispronouncing this name. <laughs> uh, Anias, uh, also known as Herodian or the Palatine. Palatile Mansion. Mansion. Big deal. That's where the Herodian dynasty had its mansion. People believe that uh, Jesus was uh, interrogated somewhere in there uh, by this, by uh, the Jewish authorities. Uh, It's important, Blake, uh, earlier I mentioned about Caiaphas and them finding his new home. It's, 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 um, that is is possible, but it's, this is the home that they're thinking about. Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Yeah. And so there was a home, a mansion for great high priest, which was a very powerful position in the first century in Jerusalem. So they think that this 6,005-year-old square foot house, two stories, is possibly that place, which would have said maybe Caiaphas lived here as well. Yeah, that would definitely be interesting. You know, I mean, like inside this mansion, you can see the mosaic flooring uh, in the possible house. Uh, and there's a, we even have the, I believe we might even have the tomb uh, of him. Yep, we and, found that. And so, and of course, if you, you purchase the book, you can see all these pictures, of course. They really help bring this to life, you know. Yeah, they do, a lot of pictures in there. And so, um, then, so... Uh, just talk about the tomb real fast. One of the most uh, unknown sites in Jerusalem is the uh, Akladama tombs. Uh, archaeologists have long considered to be a likely place referred to in scriptures as the field of blood. Uh, the former place in pottery, which was made in traditional place where Judas Iscariot hanged himself. However, this burial spot on the southeast end of the Hinnom Valley is rich in history. It is likely the burial place for the high priest Annas, which uh, along with 79 others. You know, it's amazing what the Bible can actually prove, Blake. You know, we can go through individual Roman emperors from Caesar of Augustus. We have his bust. We have um, um, Nicopolises named after him. We have coins with his image on it. And one of the things, like you take Caesar of Augustus, who was emperor during the time of Jesus' birth. One of the things that proves the New Testament so accurately is something as simple as a coin. Because Herodian family or whoever all had, uh, Caesar of Augustus had coins minted in their image. Which, you know, not a god, but of an actual person. There's statues of him. There's a census that uh, uh, references, references Caesar of Augustus. There's an altar dedicated to him at Caesarea Maritime, which is one of my favorite places to go. Um, we have a mausoleum of Caesar of Augustus. Uh, we could fill an archaeological book in reference to this man that's mentioned in Luke 2 and 1, that he was a real human being. Um, we've got Tiberius. Uh, we have coins with his name on it. We have a cave of pleasure for him. We have a mausoleum dedicated. We have Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germicus. 
uh, who in the world thought to name their kid that? Acts 11 and 27 mentions him. Acts 18 and 22, Acts 21, Acts 24 mentions him. We have a bust of Claudius. We have a coin for Claudius. We have an archway built for him. Um, We have um, uh, things that uh, other writers that record the famine during the time of Claudius. We have Nero, Augustus, A.D. 54, who blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. We have a coin with his uh, picture on it. We have a bank. We've just actually found the banquet room of Nero, which I find fascinating. Uh, Nero was adopted by Emperor Claudius that we just talked about, Claudius Tiberius. And he served as the emperor of Rome from A.D. 54 to 68. And there are many places in history through coins, statues, writings, and architect that we can use to prove that Nero was one of the most well-known Roman emperors amongst Christians, that he was real. Archaeologists have found um, a a gold coin uh, that has his image on it. They were excavating his house and they found a famous room uh, a circular, and, and, and it revolved perpetually, night and day, uh, in imitations of the motions of the celestial bodies of the Milky Way. Wow. Nero had stars painted on it with ivory panels that slid back to allow petals of flowers and beautiful perfumes to be rained down on his guests. This large palace was built on the Esquiline Hill and was remarkable. Um, it's a remarkable view in the city of Rome. It was destroyed by fire because he wanted to increase the size. Uh, and he accused Christians of, um, of destroying it. Now, Nero committed suicide in AD 68. But he's the one that used to light Christians on fire so he could watch his roses at night. Yeah, that's, that's so weird to even say. So many people like that can be found in the in the Bible. And as Blake gets ready to close this out... I mean, we could go on and on with the different people. Just the Herodian family is enormous. And that's the podcast that's coming up next on the Herodian family. But there are so many accurate, plausible people, places, and things in the New Testament directly connected to Jesus that can be definitively found to be real people, to be... um, uh, real situations like Tactius writing about uh, Nero. Um, matter of fact, um, the Annals, which is Tactius's final work, where he talks about the works and the reigns of Nero, is one of the very first secular sources ever to mention Jesus Christ as a human being. So Tactius mentions Jesus in connection with the persecution of the Christians during the burning of Rome through Nero. And according to Tactius, after the burning of Rome, Nero accused Christians of hate crimes against the human race. Early Christians were first asked to denounce Christ, which many did not, and were made sport of by throwing them to the dogs and the beast if they didn't in Nero or Gaseus's circus. Nero had the hides of dogs attached to Christians and then let the wild beasts run after them Some of them were nailed to a cross and set on fire in the arena publicly for sport and entertainment. And at night again, he used night night lamps uh, uh, with Christians when he poured oil on top of their heads. Even the cruelty of Christianity can be proven. And Blake, I saw a thing recently where someone on the internet, you got to be careful on the internet because just blatant lies proposing as truth. 
things that we know historically, definitively are not true. And that is um, uh, there really wasn't a lot of persecution amongst Christians. I read that same thing. Yeah. I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I I read that too. And I thought, are you crazy? You know, like um, we know these things to be absolute fact, you know? Um, So for them to, to make that uh, assertion was, I thought was, was crazy. I mean, just way out left field. I thought, have you ever read anything in history? You know, that was kind of my thoughts, you know? Um, But, I, I just thought that was crazy because Christians have been persecuted literally since the beginning for the most part, um, all the way up till now. And so, Hey Blake, I want to, before you close this out, I hadn't even talked to you about this, but the never four project, our lethal faith, um, a grid mm-hmm. that is, uh, uniting youth workers all over the world. Um, one, we have a newsletter that comes out every week. Uh, number two, we have a specific strategy of bringing youth pastors together for youth pastor roundtables, doing regent generation trainings, which is taking the best kids in churches all over this country and training them to be even better, especially in apologetics and defending their faith. And then also uh, lethal faith conferences, which I don't care if I'm in a room full of PhDs in Oakland, uh, California, mm-hmm. or if I'm in a conservative place like Simi Valley outside of L.A., or whether I'm in San Francisco, or whether I'm in Chicago, or wherever I'm at. If I'm in a room full of middle schoolers, or just a good old country church in eastern Kentucky, uh, with precious people, uh, it's it's uh, received overwhelmingly positive. Um, but one of the things we're getting ready to start, and if you're a youth pastor and you're listening to us, we're looking for youth pastors who want to participate with us and be part of our Never Before Grid family. You can go to never4.tv and learn a little bit about it. Uh, but we're starting discipleship groups that are based around questions. And I started this here at Covenant Community Church two years ago where I'd take, you know, my goal was 12 to 22 kids because you mm-hmm. want 22 kids, you'll end up with about 13 or 40 of them, yep. busy as they are. So taking them and just take them out to dinner. It could be uh, at a restaurant like we do, or you can go um, sit by your fire uh, campfire outside at a park somewhere and roast hot dogs. And okay, not money about that. But the whole time is dedicated to questions. So like we say, hey, everybody orders, everybody gets to know each other. Uh, what do you think about abortion? How do you yeah. respond to abortion as a Christian? And we talk about very controversial subjects and about what's going on in their life. I say, any questions you got? So we have a curriculum that we're developing that will lead the questions for 12 seasons a year. Wow. And we want you to meet at least once a month. Now, you can meet as a Sunday school class, as a small group in your youth group. You can do however you want to do it. You can even do it by special permission online because we want the connection of community to be very deep. Um, So we're multiplying what we're doing at Covenant all over the world now. And one of the ways, the on-ramps to join the Never Before family, because we've always talked about, okay, we need some teeth. Where's the on-ramp? The on-ramp is... You go find 12 to 22 kids, ages 15 to 28, and you put them in a, a, a dinner together and start discipling them, and we're going to help you. Yeah, absolutely. That's exciting. I like that. That's big-time exciting. You know, I know one of the things for me was, uh, 
I remember as a teenager thinking that the, the church as a whole did not discuss uh, controversial topics, mm-hmm. things like abortion, homosexuality. Transgenderism. Now, yeah, that's right. Now we have transgenderism and gender identity and, and mm-hmm. all kinds of a host of other things going on. And so <laughs> I think even as a teenager then, I, I remember wanting those things to be addressed. And so uh, we're going to help you guys do that. So stay tuned. And uh, as always... Thanks again. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast today. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and as always, keep it lethal.